We're going to go to the book of Esther today, Esther chapter 7. So if you have your Bible with you, that's where we're going to go. Esther chapter 7, and this is kind of the day we've been waiting for. This is the part of the story where uh, God shows up and, and comes through as we just sang about. Uh, so this is pretty cool, really, really cool. But we're going to kind of try to apply this because I think the reality of, of all these stories is, is it's good to read them, it's good to know, but it always is asking the question, how does this apply to my life? And so here's kind of where I want to start today. Um, have you noticed that life doesn't always go uh, the way you want it to go? Have you noticed that? Has that appeared, uh, you know, noticeable to you? Um, sometimes there are things you can do about it. If life's not going the way you want it to, uh, you can make some decisions, you can change some attitudes, you can change some actions, some mindsets. Uh, in other words, if you're in a marriage and you're miserable in your marriage, but you're a lousy person in that marriage, you can stop being a lousy person and you can start being nice. You can stop being angry. All the, you know what I mean? Like there are some things you can change and make your life different if you don't like the way life is going. But we're not going to talk about those today. We're going to talk about the times where the choice is not in your hands, where someone else is making a decision that has an impact on your life. And the only option you have is to appeal to someone, to make an appeal to them. And and we see a lot of that in Scripture. There's, There's lots of examples about people making an appeal because they don't have the power to make the change. Someone else has that power. Now, when, if you've ever had to do that or if you've ever been in that spot, you're facing the reality that you don't control what that person decides, even though it has a large impact on your life. That can be stressful, can't it? That can produce a lot of anxiety inside of us. And that's pretty normal. That's a pretty regular human reaction. But when you read the Word of God, we're not called to anxiety and stress, are we? There was never a time in the Word of God where Jesus said, you're not spiritual unless you're stressed out enough. I mean, we live like that sometimes, but that's not scriptural. What we are called to is things like peace and joy and hope. We're called to those. And when those show up in our life, it's because the power of the Spirit of God has been active in us. And so what makes the difference? Because I think anybody who, who finds themselves at a crossroads where someone's going to make a decision that affects you and, and everything about your life, and it's a big deal, and it feels out of control, you're going to feel anxious, you're going to feel stressed, but we're called to something else. So what makes the difference? What makes the crossover? I'm going to tell you, and I don't want to go into huge detail, but I want to tell you, listen, I have faced that moment in my life. I have been there. There was a moment um, that, that it felt like virtually my entire life hung in the balance. But it wasn't my decision. It was someone else's decision. That, that person had decided that, that uh, you know, it, it was my boss, and he had decided that I was, to put it nicely, a cancer and needed to go. And I felt like that would be catastrophic. I felt like that would be the end of everything I knew, burning a lot of bridges in my life. And when that hit me, can you imagine? When that hit me, I remember going and talking with Dana, and and I went in to work the next day, and I sat down with the boss, and I simply said this. I made an appeal. I said, listen, it's very clear to me that there's a problem here. Instead of blowing this up, I would rather fix it. Can we fix it? Let's not go down this road. I remember saying that. In that moment, it was very clear to me that my fate was not in my hands. And I had to choose whether it would be something that I would do by faith 
or something that I would do in fear, something I would try to manufacture an outcome or something where I was going to trust it to God. In that moment, what I had to do is what we're going to look at today. I had to recognize that the authority over my life and this decision that would have a huge impact in my life was given to someone else. I had to recognize that. I had to come to grips with that. And many things that were really important to me were going to be affected. It was very hard for me to swallow that level of vulnerability, especially when I thought the person making the call was making the wrong call. Matter of fact, in that moment, and even in the the few days that followed, that appeal that I made was almost immediately rejected, which was hard. It was very, very hard. But here's the thing, and this is what I want you to get from today. Things didn't go the way I wanted but things went the way God wanted. And as a matter of fact, we're all here today in part because my appeal bounced off of deaf ears. Now, I would not have chosen that in that moment. But today, I'm like, thank you, Lord. Do you know what I'm saying? Have you ever been in that spot where you were like, not this, anything but this, it can't be this. And then later on, you were like, thank God you gave me what I didn't want. And that is the key to peace and joy and hope in making an appeal. The difference between peace and worry, the difference between hope and despair, the difference between joy and sadness is simple. Do you make the appeal in faith, trusting that God will do what you'll be glad He did? Or... Do you make the appeal in desperation because you've got to have what you want? How do you make the appeal? I think we'll see both of these kinds of appeals today as Esther's plan comes to its climax and Haman's plan comes to its end. So we're going to start in Esther 7 and we're going to actually go through this whole chapter today. Uh, Remember uh, where we are. you know, Esther has gone before the king and, and he has said, I will grant you your request. And she said, my request has come to a banquet came to a banquet. He said, what's your request? She said, come to a banquet tomorrow night. So he's going to come back to the banquet. In between that, Haman had plotted to kill Mordecai. And on his way into the king to ask uh, the king if he could kill Mordecai, uh, the king said, what would you do for somebody you really liked? And Haman was like, ah, you must mean me, because of course you mean me. And so he gave this whole plan we saw last week. And, and instead, it turned out that Haman had to honor Mordecai all day, this man that he had planned to kill that day. And as we finished chapter 6, it was that Haman was rushed off to this banquet, this second banquet with Esther and the king. So remember that as we pick it up in verse uh, 1 of chapter 7. It says this. We're going to go down to verse 6. It says, So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, An adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. 
Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Yeah, I bet. All right, so as we read this, now we kind of finally come to the place where Esther has come to bring this issue to the king. Um, we saw that, that days and days ago, after Haman made this declaration, that Esther was scared to go to the king. And so they spent days in prayer and fasting, preparing for this moment when Esther would say to the king, we need your help. She's going to make an appeal. But I want you to remember as she's talking to the king, remember this background, remember this part of it. Ultimately, it is the one she's making the appeal to, the king, who was responsible for the threat to Esther and the Jews. It's his ring. It was his choice to give Haman the power. He's the one who granted Haman's request. Now, if you've ever been in a place where you have to make an appeal to someone and they were the cause of all your trouble, sometimes it feels like you should go in rage. You should go with, with power, with force, with righteous indignation to tell them, you blew it. You messed up. You were the one who was wrong. But I want you to see that Esther doesn't do that. Esther goes in, although she could feel like she was justified in attacking his character, his judgment. She instead goes in being very mindful of the tone in which she makes this appeal. And the tone reflects faith. The tone reflects faith in this. Who does she believe God, or who does she believe set up king as king? God. She goes, I'm not going to disrespect the fact that God has entrusted Xerxes as king with these decisions. So I'm going to go in humbly. Even though he's the problem or part of the problem, ultimately the one who made this mistake, I'm going to go in humbly and make this appeal by faith. I will tell you, if you ever go to try to change someone's mind in a rage or in pride or all puffed up with how right you are and how wrong they are, you are not going in faith. You're going in you. Now, you may be able to manufacture your outcome, but your experience, I can guarantee your experience is not going to be peace and joy and hope. Your experience is going to be turmoil and chaos and stress and pressure and worry, right? It's going to feel heavy. Even sometimes we do this with God. Sometimes we go with God and we go with God to make an appeal. We're like, God, why did you do this to me? Why did you blow it? You could change everything with just one word from your mouth. Why don't you fix it? Don't we? What are we missing there? God is God. Where's the humility? Where's the, he might know more than me. Like, like that's a real stretch, right? God might know more than you. But we go in and we demand from God as though, as though we're on par with him, as though we're even with him. And in some sense, when someone has authority over my life and I go in with, without humility, when I go in without recognizing their place, what I'm doing is, is an affront to the one who put them in that place, which is my Lord. And I'm not bowing the knee before him. And so Esther comes in. You can dig in more about making appeals. In Daniel chapter 1, you can see Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego making an appeal uh, to the people in charge of them. You can cross-reference it over to Jesus on trial and how he interacted with those who wanted to kill him and were able to kill him and eventually put him to death. Matter of fact, Peter, later on, who was an eyewitness to this whole thing, said, Jesus didn't try to read Herod or Pilate or figure out what the right thing to say was to the chief priest. He didn't try to manipulate it at all. What did he do? For in, in 1 Peter 2, here's what it says. 
he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. He said, this is for me, I'm going to submit to whatever you say because I'm really not looking at you, I'm looking past you. I'm saying this plan, whatever you, you do, is really submitted to the plan of the one who's really in charge and the one who will win the day. Without that truth, without that foundation for anything we do, when something's not going the way we want it to and we try to make an appeal, we will always make an appeal in our flesh and, and in fear instead of in faith. And so it would have been a huge mistake, I think, for Esther here to try to maneuver the king into a favorable response. But instead, I believe she went in already having prepared to trust God with whatever came out. And that's the hitch, isn't it? Letting go of what I want, that's the hitch. Because why even make an appeal if I don't care what comes out? No, sometimes I'm called to it. But I'm called to it in faith, not in power, not in manipulation. So she goes, has this banquet and it talks about they are drinking wine on the second day, meaning the the, the second feast, the second time they were together. And drinking wine talks about it being at the end of their meal together. And so that's when the king says, hey, what do you want? Kind of etiquette because she's showing him honor and and graciousness and and generosity by having this this feast for him and for Haman. And then He's waiting to receive all of it before he says, so what would you like? What is your request? And so they waited until after dinner to revisit the business of the request. I mean, he knew she had a request because she had appeared before him uninvited at the peril of her own life. She had appeared before him. Clearly, she had a request. And he says, what, what is your request? And did you get what he said again the third time? He said, up to half the kingdom, it will be granted to you. Isn't it, doesn't it say something about Esther that this is the third time the king has said it and she's not like, well, I'm going to hold you to that. You said up to half the kingdom, so here's what I'm going to ask. She doesn't do that. She's not trying to leverage his words against him. Sometimes the most devastating part of our relational communication is we are like lawyers with each other. Well, that's not what you said. What you said, I'm going to quote it back to you, and I even put my, my cool voice on for them. What you said was, I'm never going to, right? I get, I get into their voice, right? You're going to make sure that, that your perfect recording is the whole point. What's the real point of communication? Is it perfect wording? Is it perfect memory? It's really understanding. And sometimes, have you ever misspoken? Have you ever said something that didn't come off right or didn't reflect accurately what you meant? Ever? Of course you have. So maybe it's possible the other person has too and you could give them like a mulligan on trying to express it. No, we wouldn't do that, right? So here's Esther. Now the king has said three times, up to half the kingdom I will give it to you. And that's not any reason for hope for Esther because she's not looking at that. How can I gain the advantage, right? She's held two banquets for him. She's honoring him and she's humbling herself before him recognizing his position as king and the burden it puts on him. And even in the way she words it, she recognizes the burden it puts on him to grant her request. And so she says, here's the thing. I want to tell you what's on my heart and then I'm going to leave it with you. She looks at the process of how to get to the request and how to present it in a way that shows honor because honoring the king for her is honoring God. Trusting God means she doesn't have to worry about whether the king says yes or no. That the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. 
And so she steps forward into this, letting God direct her steps and her words. Remember, three days of prayer and fasting to tune into God's heart before she goes in. And then she says to him, if I found favor with you, if it pleases you, please grant me my life. She's not challenging him. She's not sarcastic. I know that just cut out half of your like tools to make an appeal, right? No sarcasm. How, how do I even talk? I don't even know how to talk. She goes humbly to the one who has the authority to make this decision. She shows honor to the one who makes the call. Showing honor to the person who is in charge, the person who has the authority to make a call, is not a statement about their wisdom or their discretion or even their character. Showing honor to the one who makes the decision is a statement about faith that God has given them that right and they will answer to Him. And I can trust myself to God regardless of what they say. Now that sounds really good, doesn't it? But it's really hard, isn't it? That's a really hard thing. That's where my faith gets stretched in uncomfortable ways. Trusting God means submitting to those who have the say over your life. If, if you're a teenager and you're at home and your parents are stupid, God has put them over you. Trusting God means honoring your parents. Even when they're doing what you think they shouldn't be doing. Even when their call makes no sense to you. Bosses sometimes are ridiculous. They're self-centered and they're short-sighted. And they're, but if they're in charge and they're making a call, as a believer, if you're going to walk by faith, you're going to honor them as your boss because who put them in charge of you? And who rules over them? So we're going to follow God by faith by honoring the one that's in charge of me. Whether it's elected officials, local authorities, whoever it is, if they have authority over me, honoring them doesn't mean I'm making a statement about them or their qualifications or, or even endorsing them as a person. It just means God put them there and I'm going to honor God by, by obeying them. So Esther comes in with that attitude and she begins to speak in ways that reflect that. She focuses on what will register and matter most to him. She doesn't overstate the crisis. She's not trying to manipulate him. So she doesn't go into all this drama about I've been up for nights and days and I haven't eaten it. She doesn't do all that. She's not trying to to play on his emotions. She just wants to put it in front of him. She simplifies it. She gets right down to it. She literally, she says, grant me my life and spare my people. Literally the wording is my life is my request, and my people are my request. That's what I'm asking for. I'm asking for my life. Now, in that moment when she says, my life is in jeopardy, we don't know if King Xerxes connected all the dots to, you know, a couple days ago, Haman asked her. We don't know if he got all that, right? What we do know is that she just says, that's the, the crisis. The crisis is that I am going to die, that my life is in danger, and all of my people are in danger too. She's not going to say how hard it's been on her. She just says, King, I just want you to know, you've asked what my request is. I'm going to tell you, it's for my life to be spared. And she presents her request to the king. Every part says, I accept this is your call. I know this is your call. And so she says, you know, if it pleases you, and, and if I found favor with you, and please, that all those things express this idea that I am submitted to the fact that you make the call, not me. It's your decision. 
The last phrase there about, you know, if, if it, we had merely been sold as slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would disturb the king. It's a really difficult uh, interpretation of that phrase. Uh, people really, really struggle with what that says. But it is clear this. What she's focusing on as she says that is, I wouldn't have brought this up, but it's going to harm you. And so it's such a big deal that since it's going to harm you, I thought I needed to bring it up. That's what she's saying. Not, it's going to harm me, but this is going to matter because it's going to harm you. And so you see this appeal. She doesn't know how the king's going to react, but she makes this appeal that her life, literally, her life hangs in the balance. But she makes it humbly. She makes it graciously. She makes it by faith. I wonder if our faith has ever been challenged like that. So King Xerxes begins to respond. And King Xerxes is not happy about this. Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? you suddenly get the sense that King Xerxes is upset. (laughs) Really, really mad. And he's immediately going to address this threat. Show me who he is. Point him out. Tell me where to find him. We will deal with this threat and we will deal with it right now. Now over here on the other side is Haman. And he has probably connected the dots. His head's spinning a little bit. Like, whoa, today I was going to kill Mordecai. I spent the whole day parading him around, showing him honor. And now here I'm at the banquet and, and I didn't, maybe he didn't even know that Esther was part of the people connected to Mordecai that he wanted to, maybe he didn't even know that. But suddenly it's very clear to Haman that he's in trouble. And, and so as, as uh, Xerxes and Esther interact about who is this and you can feel the rage of the king coming up, Esther answers directly, it is an adversary, it is an enemy, it is this vile Haman. And in that moment, God's plan becomes realized, becomes evident. She finishes with the part that would be most difficult for the king to hear, but most central to the story. Because why? Because he is a trusted ally, he's a trusted friend, but she calls him vile, an adversary, an enemy. She only says that after the king asks her who it is. She really shows consideration for the king. She's not going to bother him until he asks and all that stuff. But at the end, she recognizes she's not actually making the appeal to the ruler to change his mind. She has to give him the facts and then let God work. When we walk by faith, what we do is we see God at work through the one who holds the power over our lives. Because ultimately we trust him, not them. And so I'm asking you today, can you trust God when someone in charge makes a decision that has a big impact on your life? Can you still trust God? Can you trust God? Can you still be a Christian if the wrong person gets elected as president of the United States? You know what I really love about our church? Yeah. Is God big enough for that? See, this is what happens. We flush our Christianity in the secular world. And we should not do that. Do you recognize that the darkness is the best place for light? So if I'm going to interact with what's happening in our country, shouldn't I do it by faith and not by all this panic and all this pride and all this condemning and can you believe and what's... Right? Where is Christianity in our country? Our country has effectively told us that we should separate our relationship with Christ from our interaction with this world. Don't buy it. Can I be at peace? Can I be okay? Can I trust God when things don't go the way I think they should? That's 
the key question. I guess what we're reacting to is whether or not we actually believe God is big enough and God is faithful enough and God is for us and God is trustworthy. Do you believe it? Then let's live it as we go. Now, Haman is not trusting God and therefore Haman is terrified. He's about to make his own appeal, but his appeal is not going to be in faith. His appeal is going to be much more normal. His appeal is going to be, I want what I want and I'm desperate to have what I want. That appeal falls a little bit flat. So let's pick it up. Verse 7 and 8. Here's what it says. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. The king is too angry to speak, and he gets up, it says, in a rage, and he walks out into the garden. Clearly, he has already decided what he is going to do with Haman. But he's, he's got to take a little bit to digest it. He's too angry to speak. He isn't mad at Esther. He's mad at whoever did this, and that's why Haman is terrified. Now, why is king uh, Xerxes is so upset about this. What got him so mad? Well, number one, he realizes that Esther is in danger. His wife, his queen, is in danger. And in this culture, a threat against the queen was a threat against the king. In other words, if the king can't protect his own wife, how powerful of a king can he be? Right? So there is a direct connection. So Esther's in danger. But the king also realizes that what put her in danger, because now he's, it's playing in his head, is the law that he gave Haman the ability to make about a week ago. And he goes, now I know how laws work in Persia. They are irrevocable. You can't rescind a law. I know we can do that all the time here in America. In Persia, the king made a law and sealed it. That was the end of it. It, You didn't take it back. And so Esther's in danger. Her people are in danger and it can't be undone. The king is upset. But number two, he also realizes that this person he trusted, his closest and most honored nobleman, has tricked him and betrayed him, putting Esther's life in danger and using uh, the king's trust for his own personal self-interest instead of helping him run the kingdom. What do you mean? Well, betrayal because he's put the queen in danger and therefore, you know, kind of an implied attack on the king. But he's tricked him too because, as you remember, When Haman went and asked the king for this permission, he didn't tell him who it was. He said, there's a people, and they're troublesome, and they do their own thing, and and they're a problem, and we need to wipe them out. He never told the king who he was, who they were. And so the king feels like, you blindsided me. You've betrayed me. And so this rage inside of him is because someone that he trusted to do the right thing to help him has really just really messed up his whole life. And so... The king leaves. Now, Haman is there in the room with Esther. And Haman goes, it says here, Haman realizes the king has already decided what's going to happen. So he doesn't go to the one in authority, the one who's making the decision to make his appeal. Who does he try to appeal to? Esther. Well, she knows what it's like to be in danger of her life. And she seems to have some sway with the king. So I think I'm going to go talk to her. I'm going to go beg her for my life, right? And so what's my best plan of attack here to save my life? The crisis in in Haman's life is very similar to the crisis in Esther's life. But do you see the difference between their approaches to the solution? 
When Esther finds out her life is in danger, prayer and fasting. Uh, showing honor to the one making the decision. When Haman finds out his life's in danger, he tries to find out what's his best scheme. What's my best in here? How do I make this work in my advantage? Unfortunately for Haman, as the king gets over his rage and comes back, what he finds is Haman clinging to Esther, probably to her feet. He's probably on his knees at the bottom of the couch, holding on to her feet. That, that seems to be the impression that's given from the way that that's worded. And the king, who's already like enraged at Haman, of course, takes the worst possible interpretation of this. You know, he's going to, to, to rape my wife here just because I went out into the garden. And so he is done with Haman. And I just want you to see the difference. Haman has no ability to make an effective appeal because Haman is just desperate for the answer he wants. That's it. There's no place for faith in his life. That is the way our world works. How can I get what I want? Here's what a Christian believes. How can I get what God wants for my life? And those are two very different things. Make my desire your desire. Let me trust you enough to embrace whatever you bring my way, believing with all my heart that it's the right thing for me. Is that the faith that's inside of you? Is that the faith that's living and breathing in you? Obviously, it wasn't in Haman. And it says, as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered his face. Now, the word's probably not referring to, will he molest my wife in my presence? The word is probably referring to his pronouncement of judgment, which is, Haman will die. And covering their face, we don't know about the, the, the culture of the Persians here, but in the Greek culture, and the Roman culture, covering the face of someone was a sign that this prisoner was condemned to death. So there's this sense of finality. As soon as the word leaves the king's mouth, Haman's fate is sealed. And so let's finish the chapter and see what it says. Verse 9, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to the height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. And the king's fury subsided. Haman's appeal is literally dead before it even is spoken, right? Esther's appeal is a winner before it even is spoken. What's the difference? The difference is one is made in faith, the other is made in desperation. One is made trusting God, the other is made trying to make things work for me. Here's the point of the irony. Haman is hung on the gallows or impaled on the pole that is right next to his house. Why did he put it next to his house? He wanted to enjoy watching Mordecai suffer. The irony is this. Men make plans, but God rules over them all. Believers, I challenge you to live like that's true. No matter what news you get this week, no matter what someone says about you, no matter what your paycheck looks like, no matter what your health is this week, I challenge you to live like men make plans and this world goes on, but I believe without a doubt that God rules over it all and I can trust Him. So I will. I challenge you to live like Esther lived. So Haman built this pole and now he dies on it. Mordecai, this day was honored. The, the, the whole day before Haman is discovered and uh, executed is a day to honor Mordecai. And in this uh, mention here by the eunuch, he's mentioned twice. Mordecai, the one who spoke up for the king. Just now the king hears how the man 
that he spoke to that morning, Haman, had come to him with a plan to kill Mordecai while the king had a plan to honor Mordecai. He starts to see Haman for who he really is at the very end. God exposes the plans of the wicked. God rules. And what I will say to you is this. Sometimes we act like it's not fair that they get away with this. Do you realize what you just said? That God doesn't see and God will not deal with justice. Do you realize you just said that? It's not fair that they get away with it. Did they get away with it? Did Haman get away with it? No, they won't either because you know why? God is righteous and he sees all and he will judge. And if someone has done something wrong, you don't have to worry about it. If you go by faith, what you know is this, God's got it. I don't need to get it. When we were looking at the, the, the study of the end times on Wednesday nights, one of the things we finished with was looking at the eternal destination of the wicked. If you will grab a hold of what God says lies in store for those who refuse and reject Him, you're not going to feel like they got away with anything. You're going to feel sorrow for their fate. It's the one that they chose, but you're going to feel pity and sorrow. You're going to feel a burden to go share with those who even hate you about the life that can be found in Jesus Christ, about the salvation from this awful fate that can be theirs in Jesus Christ. That's what happens when I look by faith instead of looking for my own self. And so the, the suggestion is made to the king, none too subtle. Hey, Haman has conveniently provided a way that you can put him to death right now. And so the plans that he had for Mordecai become his own end. Thank God, God came through. Isn't that so cool? Isn't that so cool? One of the themes of this day is this. When God is at work, it doesn't often look like he is. Right up until the moment where he decides to show you that he is. So, can you trust that God is at work even when it doesn't look like He is? Can you trust that God is faithful even when it looks like He's forgotten about you? Can you trust that God is good even though your life is a struggle, even though it feels like you're in the middle of a storm or you're in the middle of a war? Can you trust that God has you? Will you trust that God has you or not? That's kind of the theme of the story. Point of the irony here, the point of the whole, the whole ending here is that God had it all along. And in the end, everyone gets to see it. How can this challenge us? Remember, they didn't know the end of this story. As Esther prepares banquet number one, she doesn't know how it's going to turn out. As Esther prepares banquet number two, she doesn't know how it's going to turn out. Right? I mean, we, we read the end of the story. Yeah, don't worry, Esther, it's going to be okay. She didn't have that. And you don't either. You don't know how it's all going to turn out. Okay? So follow what Esther did here. That's why it's given to us because we don't know how it's all going to turn out, but we kind of do, don't we? We kind of know that God already has it. I can trust whatever's coming to God because I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know tomorrow's going to be okay because I know God holds it. And let's apply that to the circumstances of our lives. Can God be trusted when a person in charge makes a decision about my life that I don't like? Can God still be trusted? Are there decisions that I won't get that God asked me just to accept because it's not about the decision, it's all it's about my faith, stretching my faith? Are there decisions that I may need to go say something about and make an appeal, but make the appeal in faith because I'm going to show, in that moment, I'm going to show honor to whom God has placed in positions of authority or power. Ultimately, every one of us make a choice every day 
about whether we will walk by faith, whether we will live like God is faithful, and whether, or whether we will believe what our eyes, what our feelings, what our, what our circumstances tell us, that life is out of control. So we're going to close with a song today that's a, it's kind of got some energy. You're going to send us out of here with some energy today about putting our faith in God like that. A faith that will stand up to the storms and the tests and the darknesses and the uncertainties that life holds for us. And I would say to each one of us, as, as we close with this song, let's make this kind of like my, my understanding, my prayer. Let's make this a reassurance of what I believe is the truth from the Word of God and from the story that we've looked at today, that God is already in our tomorrows. He already holds them. He already knows them. He already has them. And so I can walk confidently today because my God already has tomorrow. If we can believe that, we can go out of here ready to live by faith in Jesus Christ.